Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Move as fast as you can into the, um, the confidence of saying what you think about something. Today I'm talking to Gwen Parry-Jones, who is Chief Executive of Magnox Limited, the company responsible for the safe and secure cleanup of 12 UK nuclear sites and also the operation of one 30 megawatt hydroelectric plant. Gwen is President of the Nuclear Institute and was awarded an OBE in 2019 for services to science and technology. And she lives on the lovely island of Anglesey in North Wales, not too far from Wilkes station and has a passion for horses. Welcome Gwen and thanks for joining me. It's funny Andrew when you introduced me like that it sort of sounds still as if you're talking about somebody else. You know who is it who's doing all those things? Oh it's me. So hi there everybody hello. We all have these feelings sometimes don't we when we think how did that happen? How did I end up doing what I'm doing now? (laughs) And that's what we're going to talk about you know great stuff I think sometimes you know um, when we're discussing whether it's a technical issue or some decision that needs to be made and we're sitting you know these days sitting in front of a computer screen discussing it occasionally you know I I look around and think well who knows the most about this topic and suddenly you realize that you are the person who does have the most experience in that that field so it's um it's always a a surprise and a delight (laughs) you've got all the answers that's good (laughs) I don't know about that (laughs) (laughs) and so Gwen you grew up in North Wales and also your family moved to Dharan in Saudi Arabia and then you came back to Penrose College in in Colwyn Bay so tell us a little bit about your younger years and what you were like and got up to and how you managed with all those changes well, you know, looking back, it was a sort of idyllic um, childhood, really. Um, we uh, lived in a little village in Anglesey. In fact, that's where I've moved back to now is the, the family home. And, um, you know, it was a very outdoors lifestyle. And I have parents who are both scientists. And, uh, you know, we did occasionally talk about science at the, <laughs> the dinner table. But, um, you know, a lot of my younger years were spent running around the fields here. And of course, it was a big change when we moved to Saudi Arabia. But one I think that was really useful because I guess, you know, I was exposed to lots of different cultural um, sort of, you know, influences at at that early stage. And then further coming back to boarding school in in the UK, it's probably given me an independence that at the time I didn't realise that, um, you know, I was getting. But it's made me quite an independent thinker. And I think for me, that's been a, a really good journey. So first, the sort of security of a very nice family life in my early years then a lot of diversity across the different cultures and then this piece of independence and it was actually an all-girls school which I think also had a small part to play in me feeling that anything was possible actually. That's really positive isn't it and and often at that time and in fact at any time in life when you're hit by big change and you find it difficult actually looking back you can see how it shaped you and actually you know what was difficult at the time can become a positive experience and actually help to shape who you are now 
I think um, that change early on, you know, of course, I found it hard. You know, I, I was homesick and all sorts of things. And, um, you know, it's, um, it, I look back at it, uh, you know, I had an awful lot of fun as well. I wasn't um, the most, I mean, I always did well in, with my studies, but I wasn't the most rule following of, of students. So I used to sort of get into a bit of trouble, actually. And um, I remember once having a conversation with the headmaster, he was called Mr. Peacock, and he was a huge influence, actually, because he taught me about the importance of every individual having a view and requiring respect. But he did say to me once, he said, you know, Miss Parry Jones, I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a good thing that you're good at your studies. Otherwise, I would have to make some different decisions about your attendance at this school. So, you know, my, my advice is that if you are going to, you know, live your life, please also do your work because um, then you can balance yourself. And, but I do think it's given me a resilience and an independence of thought that I probably wouldn't have had if I just stayed in a, a more traditional sort of um, schooling, you know, at home and, and so on. Um, but, you know, things work differently for different people. Yeah, no, that, that that's right. That, that's, it's really interesting what you say there. I think that's probably where I went wrong. You know, I, I, I didn't do the study bit at school. <laughs> that came later. Um, so tell us about your sort of transition then from school uh, into university, because you then moved to Manchester uh, to read physics. Um, how did you find that transition? What was behind, you know, your your thinking there? Um, I guess, you know, I had an extremely good physics teacher at school, um, a, a gentleman called Mr. Bethel, who was, um, you know, who was such an enthusiast about the subject. And, you know, he he really helped me to, to develop a passion for how things work. You know, what, why does it work like that? What, you know, what, how can I find out how it works? So I, I joined um, the physics um, undergraduate population in Manchester. And, you know, when I was um, studying, there weren't so many female um, students and, and actually um, I, I quite liked the uniqueness of, of that. You know, I, I enjoyed um, physics. I found it quite hard. You know, I found my, my studies quite hard. I, up to then in school, I'd sort of found, you know, my work relatively easy. But when I started studying physics, I actually found some of the conceptual pieces quite hard to visualize. Um, and, you know, I worked really hard through the three years to, to, to get my degree there. But Manchester was a great place to study too, because you know, again, um, lots of different influences, um, you know, living in different places with people doing all sorts of different courses. And um, I've got very fond memories of Manchester, um, you know, um, so, so, some of them to do with studying and some of them just to do with, you know, living, living your life, really. There's a lot to do. And um, I enjoyed being in a city, actually, for, for a while. You didn't find um, that a difficult transition then from rural North Wales into? Well, not so much. I, I, I think... Um, for me, um, particularly in my youth, I found, you know, changes like that very um, energising. I think it, it, it's become less so, actually, funnily enough, as I've got older. I think, um, you know, I, uh, it, you know I, I think we do get stuck in our ways a little bit and actually having something to prompt you out of it is, is a good thing. And that's really a pattern. You know, I've changed jobs in the last few years a number of times, and I think that's partly to... Um, help me to to reinvent the way I think about things, but but early on in my my sort of education and career, I um I really liked all that change. It was it 
was something that that motivated me actually. Yes, and you mentioned there um, uh, at Manchester doing the physics that some of the sort of conceptual things you found difficult to grasp. Were there other aspects to the course that you find found easier? And did that sort of tell you anything about the way you think, the way your strengths are, or anything like that? Do you think? I think um, what what I found is that um, the way I think is uh, is quite visual. Um, so if I can create a little picture or a mental model of the thing that I'm studying, that I find that you know helps me. Um, and and therefore I was quite attracted towards almost like the industrial applications of physics rather than the theoretical part um, because I wanted to see the result in the in the experiment you know wh where's the output and some of the more um, conceptual ideas of theoretical physics in particular I found quite quite difficult because I never really got a you know a proper picture in fact um, you know I, I was remembering the other day one of the um I'm sure these days they wouldn't do it, but one of the lecturers, um, I was struggling with some aspects of quantum physics, and um, one of the lecturers had had one of his books published in Chinese, and uh, he he awarded me the book in Chinese because he he thought he thought I would understand it as much as I did the English version, and and you know that was particularly cruel, but was probably I still got the book actually, so um in in Chinese. So, uh, but I, you know, the thing is that um, I guess it was really good for me to be faced with a situation where I, I didn't know everything. You know, I, I knew what I didn't know. And um, I think that's a really good thing to take forward with you. That I, I think sometimes um, the enthusiasm of youth, in my case, I sort of felt a bit invincible a few times. And actually, I think you do have to remember what you don't know. And um, you know, as I've as I've got older, I'm I'm more aware of that. So uh, yeah, it was good to be reminded. I think it is good, and I think I think you learn to be comfortable in your ignorance in some ways. You know, but but also it means the value of working with other people who are experts in the things that you're not, and being comfortable that you don't know everything. It's a real lesson, isn't it? So so you finished your physics and then you went and did banking and finance at master's level at, at Bangor. So tell us about that sort of little journey and step. Well, I suppose, you know, I was um, a victim of fashion because um, at the time there were a lot of people who thought that, um, you know, having a, a, a degree, a scientific or a, a numeracy based degree sort of qualified you very well for working in the city. And I sort of thought, oh, that might be quite good. And um I decided rather than, you know, jumping straight in, that I'd go and study economics. It was actually banking and finance I studied, uh, which ended up with a, a master's degree in, in economics, banking and finance. And um, what I found out was that, I mean, as much as I, I actually am really pleased I did that, that degree because I think it's helped me in my later career. But what it taught me was that I actually was much more interested in um, a physical process that made something rather than the, the, the sort of virtual processes of, um, you know, the vagaries of foreign exchange or anything else. So I, I, it really helped me to firstly have, as I say, sort of that, that, that piece of paper that said I, I had done some study in this area, but it pushed me forward to decide much more about, um, you know, wanting to work in an industrial setting. So uh, yeah, you know, good, good times. What a brilliant way to do it. You know, a year's master's, it's not wasted, whatever, is it? And it's not a final decision either. So um, 
so after deciding that the city wasn't your career, you then um, uh, joined the what was then, I guess, the Central Electricity Generating Board, the CEGB, and at um, at Magnox Wilver. That that's right. Yes, yeah. and um, you know. I, I went to my interview and it was the Central Electricity Generating Board. I think the contract that came through offering me a job was with National Power. And the day I started was National Power Nuclear. So it was when the, 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 the companies were splitting up and going through quite a big transition. But, you know, um, you know, at this point in time, I don't want to admit too much to some of these things. But, you know, I wasn't really. What was I worried about? You know, when I went to work, my first day at work. Um, obviously, you know, going to work as a reactor physicist at a nuclear power station, I was so excited and I, I still am, you know, every time I drive down the approach road of a nuclear power station, I still get goosebumps and I think it's incredible how, you know, we can pull together all these disparate bits of kits and, you know, millions of elements and put them together and make it safely produce electricity for, for the good of, of the country and, and others. But um, my biggest problem on my first day at work was what should I wear? <laughs> you know, I, I had no experience of, of uh, a workplace. And, um, you know, often now when I talk to graduates or apprentices coming into work, you know, they are much more clued up about what's required from them than I ever was. You know, I, I, I remember being... Um, shown into the station director's office I think they did that I, I'm assuming they did that for every new starter but um you know I went into work met my boss who I still am in touch with it's actually John Idris Jones that some of you might know so John was my first boss and um what a great boss he was as well um but um they took me to meet the station director and I remember going into this what looked like this sort of palatial office with this big desk and you know this very sort of well-dressed chap Mike Williams his name was and I remember quietly thinking in my head I wonder if I wonder what his job is I wonder if I could ever do that job and you know it took me years to say that say that out loud um even though I was right at the the, the outset thinking hmm, I wonder what it would take to run a nuclear power station um but you know I was I was given some fantastic opportunities early um, in my career and I learned a lot and you know one of the things I say to people now is do as much as you can early in your career to to get some breadth because it, it sort of becomes a little harder as you either become specialized or you become less mobile or so you know go for it in the early stages and try and get as much under your belt but also don't don't wish your life away either because I think these jobs you know for me every couple of years I changed job and I, and I think that that for me worked well because I, I got a lot of knowledge under my belt in each step um, so yeah Wilbur was the start of it and actually you know I've come full circle now as CEO of Magnox and um, it's a delight to to be closing out the life cycle as well you know, I'm now responsible for dealing with some of the waste that, you know, as, a, as an operator at Wilver, you know, I, I was, um, you know, there when we put it into the vaults. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's lovely, that sort of full circle. Just thinking about this sort of point you make about moving around earlier in, in your career, was that something that you took initiative to explore or, or was it something that the organization was very keen for you to do how, how did that work in practice it was um 
sort of a bit of both, but I, I think the um, the drive came partly through my curiosity. You know, I, I was I started off as a reactor physicist, which is great. You know, and I learned a lot about the the you know the the the, the, the fault studies for for Wilbur and wider actually, and I did a lot of work with some of the material safeguards with uratum and, and stuff like that. But I always wanted to be able to get my hands on the plant. You know, I wanted to be an operator. And um, I remember applying as a, you know, I was whatever I was, 23, um, for a job as a reactor operator. And I remember one of the shift charge engineers um, said to me, oh, you know, Gwen, it's, I'm sorry, but, you know, your application won't be considered because, and, and of course, I'm sure in these days, firstly, this is illegal, and secondly, it's sort of immoral. But what he, what he said to me was that um, we don't have women on our shift because it will alter the dynamics of the team. And of course, you know, we're, we're looking after nuclear safety. And I remember thinking, is that really true? <laughs> you know? And, and, and you know, I thought, well, you know, if he, doesn't, if he doesn't want somebody like me on his team, then I'll ask somebody else. So I went and talked with other of the shift engineers and um, of course, you know, I found a really warm welcome when I joined the shift. And actually, I think we all realised that, you know, thinking differently and being different is, is actually a good thing. Um, you know, I was faced though with a situation where there were no female change rooms or um, toilet facilities in the reactor building. So they had to you know, put something together so that I could, you know, do my work. I was faced with there being no control room, room um, uniform for women. So um, they offered me the men's version. And, you know, as a 23-year-old, I wasn't going to wear men's trousers and a shirt and tie. You know, how ridiculous. But even more ridiculous, they then offered me the guide's uniform, which was like a flowery dress. Um, and, and, you know, these days I'd love that flowery dress, but then I was like, no, I'm sorry, this, this isn't going to work, you know, you, you know, so we ended up making a, an agreement that I had a small allowance to be able to buy a blouse and a, a pair of trousers that I then wore for, for work. But, you know, I know I've gone on about what I looked like and what I wore, but actually these are the things that, you know, now I hope have um, you know, disappeared from, from, from being a concern. I had a, an enormous opportunity at, at Wilver and beyond, actually, to learn about nuclear power. I was given some fantastic opportunities to do so. And coming back to your question, I drove a lot of it. You know, I get to 18 months, two years in, I, I would realise that I'd sort of learned, you know, the 80% of the job and the next 20% would take me, you know, 10 years. So, so, or whatever, but, you know, I, I, I made some decisions, but I was hugely supported, not only by the company at the time, which had ended up as Nuclear Electric, actually, um, and then moved on to being British Energy and then became EDF Energy. Um, but, you know, there were some fantastic individuals who were massively su supportive and um, challenging, actually. Um, and I'll just call out a couple. There was a, a gentleman called George Jenkins, who sadly passed not so long ago. But George, you know, if you um, came across George, he would remember your name, he would remember your situation, and he would always be so supportive. And um, I was reading some of the comments um, around when he sadly passed away not so long ago. 
And how many people said the same thing? You know, so he, he wasn't just sort of picking individuals to help. He helped everybody. So he really helped me. But also people who are still in the nuclear family today. You know, I had a lot of help from whether it was um, Stuart Crooks or Mark Gorry or Andy Spur or, you know, Matt Sykes. They, they were all really important in my um, really helping me to to be more ambitious in my aspiration, actually. And um, Mark in particular was, um, it, there's a, he, he, he probably is, you know, almost single-handedly responsible for helping me to become a station director. And I was the first female station director of a civil nuclear power station in, in Britain. And Mark said to me, we were working together um, in EDF at the time. And he said, oh, Gwen, you know, there's a plant managers assessment center going to be run um, shortly. And they don't have enough um, people to run it. So would you make up the numbers? And I remember thinking, yeah, all right, then I'll go. You know, Whereas if he'd said to me, Gwen, will you go to the plant manager's assessment centre? I said, oh, no, I'm not ready yet. But what he said was, meaning, will you go to the assessment centre? He said, well, could you make up the numbers? And, you know, blow me, I was then offered the job as the plant manager at Sizewell, which, of course, you know, I probably was ready for, but would never have acknowledged myself that I was ready for. Um, and so, you know, having people around you who will both understand, you know, your, you know, your personality and how to help you make the best of your career, but also people who have faith in you and will mentor and, and sponsor you. Um, so I, I would encourage anybody who's you know embarking on their career to look for some people who they can establish a rapport with, who can help them navigate because you know it's not easy to make some of these decisions. It's not. You're right, but it sounds as if there was a sort of coupling of both a level of ambition that was in you, and I'm interested where that came from because you were saying that you know after 18 months or thereabouts, you had 80% of the job, and the next 20% would take 10 years. So you were keen to develop yourself and to widen your experience. And that came from within you. And I'm wondering where that came from. But then also, as you've said, there was that bit of the company, in particular, some of those, those figures who, you know, those names, you know, many people recognize, who actually connected with you and enabled some of those moves to happen. So there was that joint working in a way, but, but where do you think your ambition and your desire to develop came from? Um, I, I think, you know, I've, I've often thought about this because people say, you know, I think of myself as not being particularly competitive. When I say that to people, they all laugh at me. It's like, you know, what do you mean you're not competitive? Of course you are. And, and, you know, I think of myself as not being particularly ambitious. What I've learned, actually, is that in order to do well, the best thing you can do is to do the job you're doing as well as you possibly can. And then the other things will come. Um, but for me, um, it's a sort of, it's not even a, a learned thing. I think it's, I'm like this in my, my personal life as well. You know, I'll, I'll want to do a project and when it's finished, I want to do another project. You know, I'm not, and, and, and often that, that is a bit of a problem because sometimes you want to just sit and contemplate this, the, the project that you've just finished. And I'm, too busy to, to that's done now it's gone it's passed it's finished you know you know let's move forward what's next and I'm not you know I, I wouldn't say I'm particularly energetic in that respect but I do have a mindset of 
you know, what's past is past. You have to let go of it and move forward. And um, I, I, I practice that in probably nearly everything that I do. You know, once we've, you know, I've, I've, I've um, you know, had a little bit of an extension built for my little office working at home during COVID. Now it's finished. Now what's next? You know, and I'm not, you know, I don't even sort of enjoy the, the outcome really, which is a bit annoying. You know, it would be really nice to, to not, but I'm joking. You know, it's, it's really important to me that, um, you know, moving forward, having a dream or an aspiration or, you know, some plan, um, you know, not being too rigid in what that plan is, because, um, you know, you might be disappointed if you're, if you're too inflexible. Um, so that's sort of the way I, I live my life. I just I just give you a very small story. When I was, um, I guess I was in my 30s, I took a job as the, uh, the then it was an executive chairman, so a chairman and CEO of what was then British Energy. And it was British Energy at the point where it, it struggled with the financial, um, um, basically the, the trading environment for British Energy became very, very difficult. And um, I, I, I was also at that point sort of struggling with my role. You know, I couldn't really, as a technical assistant to the chairman, you know, it wasn't about technical, it was all, you know, politics and business. And um, I went to see an external coach and um, she said a few things to me, some of which were, I thought, thought at the time were slightly strange, like I should have been a nurse or a doctor. <laughs> and I was there like, a, I'm a nuclear engineer. So, you know, yeah. but she did actually give me a really helpful bit of advice, which um, at the time I thought was rather silly, but actually has proved to be very true. So she said to me, she said, you know, imagine you're 50. And I was 30 at the time. I think I can't imagine that I'm 50. That'd be ridiculous. You know, but she said, imagine you're 50 and you're writing a letter back to yourself, age 30, to explain what your life is like, age 50. You know, you've woken up this morning. Where are you? You know, what environment are you in? Not just about what work you're doing, but about, yeah, about what you, what life do you want? And um, I, I still have you know firstly I did it and and actually thinking about it is very different from actually writing it down so if you are going to do it I'd write it down because I think it engages a different bit in your brain and I've still got the letter and um I wrote to myself about living in the countryside about having horses about having some flexibility in my working day um, about you know some of the things that really mattered to me and I'm not sure without that letter whether I'd have been able to navigate the forks in the road that we all come to because um, it's almost been a little bit of a guiding light for me that you know the things that I wanted in terms of and it wasn't it's not materialistic things it wasn't you know want a big house and some people may want that but for me it was very much about nature about you know being in the countryside about the ability to go outside and, and do things and um it has helped me to make decisions so i would thank that that lady all those years ago for making me write a letter to myself it's a brilliant technique isn't it because one of the things we do on this this course i'm doing with um with the young professionals um is about what are your values and thinking about how can people think about what's important to them uh, and often we'll encourage them to think about think of a moment where everything just everything clicked for you what was it about that moment or indeed if it was a difficult moment what did you learn about 
what your values you know might be and what's important to you i'm just wondering, going to take you forward a little bit and i'm wondering having had that initial thought on your first day at, at wilver how you felt um when you uh, became the station director at haitian one um it's such a privilege you know that's how i still feel um I, at the time i was the plant manager at sizewell b um which you know was a big job is a big job you know running uh, you know a, a pressurized water reactor site in suffolk is you know it's an all-consuming job and i remember having a conversation um about the the role at hisham one um and the station director's role there and again you know and maybe it's a feature of of some of the way i think about myself really i remember thinking me <laughs> really <laughs> okay you know uh, but but actually at that point i did have the feeling and the confidence that i was ready for it um you know i i had it was almost as if you, you asked you, you mentioned actually um, critical moments a, a while ago um, it was that was a sort of serendipity of everything coming together all at once um, and I, suddenly I was ready to be the station director of a nuclear power station. So I was, you know, I, I was incredibly, you know, privileged and felt privileged and, and flattered in some way to be offered and to accept the role of a station director at a nuclear power station. And, you know, that, that of all the jobs I've done is, you know, is, is a delight. Well, firstly, you know, you have a huge responsibility to both the, 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 your colleagues on site, but but also the local communities. Um, and um, it sort of brought it all together, both the technical, the commercial, and all the things I'd learned, you know, the things that I'd been putting in my toolbox um, suddenly all came together. And I absolutely loved the job of station director at um, Hesham One Nuclear Power Station. And, and of course, um, you know, although I tell everybody, you know, I'm not doing a Bruce Forsyth of telling everybody that, that you're my favourite, but I do have very fond memories of, of Hesham One as some super people um, running a, a really interesting plant, which is on a very small footprint, which gives all sorts of, of challenges. So super team there. And of course, you know, I also worked at Hesham Two in the past, but um, you know, Hesham One, Hesham Two, which is the best? <laughs> yeah. Always a bit of competition. Always a bit of competition. But um, you know, Andrew, there's a couple of things that subsequently have been really critical moments in my career. Um, we had a fatal accident at Hesham One whilst I was the station director there. And um, you know, that was by far, by a country mile, the most difficult um, part of my career. Um, you know, if you if you break the plant, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm talking about breaking the plant in a, in a in a safe way. You know, obviously the plant shuts down if you you have any problem. But you know, if you lose commercial operation or you you know damage a, a component or whatever, you can fix it. But um, industrial safety and um, you know looking after people. Um, it's it's a, a non-return path, and um, I found that extremely personally very extremely difficult to deal with. Um, yet, on the other hand, we learned an awful lot, and you know what a terrible way to learn it. But um, I I guess that was probably a critical moment in my career, really. Um, and how did that change you? Do you think? Um, I, I I think. Um, it made me realize that um, 
resilience and mental health that you shouldn't take it for granted that um, you know, there are events and, and things that happen in people's lives, whether that be at home or at work, which people can't deal with. And I actually, you know, I don't often talk about this, but I did reach out for some professional help. And um, I went to see a behavioral therapist who really helped me actually through my own anxiety about the, what had happened. And I remember them doing something called eye movement therapy. And you know, to this day, I find it funny because I don't know what they do, but it's something about realigning the, the sequence in which you remember things by doing, basically by watching, um, in this case, the, the therapist holding up their finger. And, and I remember at the time thinking how comical it was, but it actually, it, and, and I don't know how, but it worked. So, so I guess what I learned is that, you know, if you are in trouble, that there are people who can help you, but the first step is to recognize that you may be in trouble. And you know, I had great support through that period as well. So if you're facing something at any point in your career where you're finding it difficult to, um, to sort of logically work your way through it, then you know, you're not unusual and get some help. I just want to explore one other thing with you. Um, you mentioned you starting at Wilver as uh, a young, you know, female uh, on the reactor physics side of things and how difficult it was for you because there weren't toilets, change rooms, all everything was not set up for you and it sort of almost sort of closed off some opportunities and things. In your current role, I'm interested in what is your advice both to, you know, and we want greater diversity of, of all sorts in the sector and we want to welcome all sorts of people you know in, in, into our sector so i'm interested in what your advice is to those those young people who may be thinking about or have started a career in the nuclear industry and they might feel different for whatever reason but also i'm interested in your advice to perhaps managers and leaders within the sector about what can what practical steps can we all take uh, you know to make those journeys easier for people I talk um, every now and then to groups of people coming into our, our industry, both as my, in my role as um, within the Nuclear Institute, but also as Magmox. And um, what what I've become aware of is that some of the things that affected me early in my career do not exist anymore. So some of those barriers have been removed. You know, life is a lot better out there than it was. Um, so I try these days to not. Um, almost to not over influence people to think it's going to be hard because it shouldn't be and it you know working together we've made it much easier and as it should be for anybody to be their best in this industry whatever the the situation is so I would say to people don't accept being pushed out or pushed away you know if you if you feel that somebody's doing something that isn't enabling you to be your best then call it out you know, don't let people um, do that. And, you know, you will get support from leadership and, and in, in, you know, near, well, all of the companies I've worked in, I know that you will get support. And, you know, banter is not acceptable. You know, banter is a one-way uh, banter. And um, I hear people saying, oh, it was only banter. No, well, hold on. If it's changed somebody's attitude to how they feel about their ability to do their job, it's not banter. It's rude and it's actually, these days, is illegal. So please stop it. Um, so I would say to people, don't, don't allow you know, others to, to sort of determine how good you're going to be. 
um, you know, be the best you can and and be um, exacting in your your requests for for help and your complaints when it when it goes wrong, which inevitably, occasionally, it, it does. So um, that would be my my advice to people coming in. I think as leaders, we have a huge obligation to make sure that all of our processes are properly set up to bring people in without fear or favour. And um, you know, I was I was thoughtful about um, you know people. Um, I think they were recruiting for some orchestra somewhere, and they decided that the that the panel who were listening shouldn't see the um, the players. And I think that they put a, a some sort of screen up, but people could still pe see people's shoes, and they still made a, a choice that was more male dominated than female when they could see people's shoes. You know, so so there's all sorts of um, subconscious bias that we all have to fight against. And you know, um, I think life has changed. You know, when you visualise a surgeon, for instance, or an airline pilot, or a, whatever it is, um, I, I think these days we have um, you know images of all sorts of people doing those jobs. And I, I, the, the the one thing I do think is really important is the importance of language. I was listening to Radio 4 this morning and they were talking about some technical job about, I can't even remember what it was now, to do with COVID and science or something. And the presenter said, well, he would need to do that. Well, just say they, they would need to do it. And that, I, I know I've become a bit of a pedant about that and I do go on and on about it, but it's so important. If you're an operator and somebody says, well, the operator, he went to check this valve. And if you're female or, you know, you, you know you, you're excluded from that immediately. So the importance of gender neutral language or neutral language in the, the wider sense, I think, is, is how we can all do better. I agree. And, and calling that sort of thing out, we found in, you know, even in, in some of our meetings, when somebody says something like that, we will tend to call it out. And actually, you know, it's, it's, it's a learning curve. So let me uh, ask my last question then, which is looking back uh, on your younger self um maybe in the middle of your physics in the in in the university of manchester there what would be your one piece of advice to the young gwen gosh that that's a, a tough one um the the turning point in my career came when i stopped trying to do everything myself and i realized that i didn't know everything and that was okay and um I would, I guess my advice to my younger self is, you know, to, to let that moment come earlier, because what a relief it was to, to talk about what I thought rather than what I knew, because actually that's where you add enormous value to industry. You have to know the basics, of course you do, but actually where you start really adding value is where you start talking about what you think. And I wish I'd sort of known that earlier, because, you know, I went through a lot of angst of wanting to know everything and, you know, being the expert in the room on, on technical matters and everything else. When actually, I could have added as much value by thinking, listening and analysing and saying what I thought, um, rather than repeating what I knew. Um, so finding that that spot between those two elements, I think, is the trick. And I wish I'd known that earlier because I'd have worried less, actually. Fantastic. Gwen, thanks so much for your time today. It's been lovely to chat. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you.
enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.